Hello. My name is Rod, and my pronouns are he, him. Um, I'm actually not Rod, I'm actually Shane, but my pronouns are still he, him. Uh, I am the spirit of Rod speaking through Shane, because Rod was supposed to be doing this bit of the talk this morning, uh, but Rod has selfishly chosen to be sick, rather than pull himself up by his bootstraps and make things work. So here I am with Rod's notes. So direct any complaints, all complaints, I encourage complaints, to rod at fitzroynorthchurch.org.au.org.au. The company, the dot, dot com's a whole other thing. Um, we are currently in a series um, looking at how the path that Jesus walked can reveal a story and a way of living that is very different to the dominant story in our culture and in the culture of his time and in our religion <laughs> and in the religion of our time, of his time. Um, this isn't a uh, the church versus the world thing. <laughs> this isn't the, a uh, we have it all right and everyone else has it wrong and so they are so misled. Boo, hiss, boo. Um, this is a response to the way the Christian tradition sees the life of Jesus as a constant invitation into a path of love and justice and realizing how we have missed the boat um, so many times to do this and realizing how every generation, every um, situation, every context, every neighborhood uh, Jesus stands in that place and invites us to a way of justice and love that makes us rethink how we engage with the world around us. Um, so if you have a high horse, I invite you to uh, take it outside. Good. Um, <laughs> that saved us doing that. It's good. Um, Last week, Tamsin introduced us to Jesus' first sermon in Matthew, where he makes this very explicit in what we call the Beatitudes. We call it the Beatitudes because they are things of beauty. Um, let's read them. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, and after he sat down and the disciples had gathered around, Jesus began to teach them, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who are mourning, they will be consoled. Blessed are those who are gentle, they will inherit the land. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, they will have their fill. Blessed are those who show mercy to others, they will be shown mercy. Blessed are those whose hearts are clean, they will see God. Blessed are those who work for peace. They will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their struggle for justice. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are fortunate when others insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of slander against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, for your reward in heaven is great. They persecuted the prophets before you in the very same way. Thank you. Um, 
If you weren't here last week, you would have missed us discussing where we find life and complexity um, and <laughs> speed bumps in that. So you're more than welcome to have a listen to it on the podcast if you want to have a little listen and reflect about what people in our community had to say about that. But we're not going to do that this morning because we have the wonderful Anaka um, speaking with us this morning, and so I don't want to take up a whole heap of time doing that. Um, Tamsin suggested that in the Beatitudes, Jesus overturns the popular expectations of who was blessed, of who God stood with. God does not stand with the rich and the powerful, but with the poor and the powerless. In the words of my, and this is Rod's man crush, I've got a completely different man crush, but I still, I flirt with Trip, with Trip Fuller. God is not on the side of those who build crosses, but those who bear crosses. And Tamsin reminded us that in every generation, we need to ask ourselves the same question. Who is at the margins in this time and place? In this time and place, who are building crosses and who are bearing them? And every generation needs to remind itself that if it wants to find God, it will find God in those places where crosses are being born. Um, if the, all the language around crosses is a bit mysterious to you, um, the context Jesus is speaking in is um, in the Roman Empire who constantly built crosses, roads and roads and roads of crosses where they would crucify anyone who stood in their way in the name of making peace um, and advancing society and civilization, civilization being not barbarians and only Romans. Um, and so they crucified anyone who stood in their way um, in the name of goodness and peace. Um, Brian McLaren, in his um, lovely little book called We Make the Road by Walking, says, before Christianity was a rich and powerful religion, before it was associated with buildings, budgets, crusades, colonialism, or televangelism, it began as a revolutionary, non-violent movement promoting a new kind of aliveness on the margins of society. Tamsin last week finished with this beautiful blessing that reminds us that just as God is not where we expect God to be, the God that we find in these unexpected places will be an unexpected God. If God is the kind that Jesus presents in the Sermon on the Mount, then God cannot be pictured as a brutal king, a projection of the worst excesses of patriarchal violence. In his time, Jesus challenged this view of God with the word Abba, God as loving Father. If we are to follow in his footsteps, we also need to challenge the metaphors for God that have no longer have life in them and introduce more metaphors that speak to those who bear crosses in our culture, those who are on the margins. Metaphors that make it clear that God is on their side. Um, it looks like I was reading, but I actually just came up with all that just then. Um, just an idea that I had, so hope you like that. Sorry, I couldn't prepare anything better. Um, this process is something that, as a community, we have continued to try and do of revisioning God and letting God reveal themselves to us over and over again. And for some of us who grow up in very narrow versions of God, this is a terrifying process. Even if we like the idea, there can be old hooks in us that um, make us afraid that if we let go of a particular version of God, even if it traumatizes us, um, that somehow we're getting it all wrong. And I think this is an invitation that Jesus tried to do this, um, tried to remind us of strands within the Hebrew Bible and within um, all kinds of forms of spirituality that God is uh, much bigger and more expansive um, 
than just a destructive, patriarchal, overbearing, Zeus-like figure. Yeah. So we're going to invite Annika today to lead us on a little journey of imagining, and it makes my heart so happy to do so. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. Um, my name is Annika. I use they, she pronouns, and um, I'm going to stand because I'm a short king. Uh, so, yeah, as Shane mentioned, the framing of this talk is within the series on the Beatitudes, which is a series in a series on the, the way of wisdom as a wisdom tradition. Uh, and I want to... Um, just echo that in terms of the Beatitudes as one of those stories. We talked about how Jesus uh, directs our vision uh, by looking where God looks uh, towards the margins. And I want to pick up on a particular thread of the wisdom way of Jesus today uh, by looking at the, law, at the line drawn between Sophia, wisdom, uh, and Jesus. So Sophia herself wisdom herself, uh, is personified throughout the Hebrew Bible, um, like with her presence at creation, her divinity, like talked of as sharing the throne of God. And um, a, a author I was reading was articulating how their descriptions of wisdom stretches at like reaching the kind of like uh, heresies of like Geotheolism um, of of elevating her to like God status and it's like stretching until I can't hold that anymore. Um, but yeah, throughout the Bible, there's this like really beautiful image of God um, that the theologian Marcus Borg calls the most fully developed feminine biblical image of God. Um, and there's a kind of particular nuance to that 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 this is the most fully developed feminine image of God, which is that we, the people who God has trusted to tell God's story, have over-identified God with male imagery. Um, we are missing out on vital nuances of God's character because we have inherited a tradition that skews really heavily to male images of God. Now, before I let myself run away in my enthusiasm, I want to throw out a few cautions. I know, cautions, me, I'm growing up. Um, I don't want to say by any means that thinking of God in terms of feminine images it, like, immediately fixes all of the problems we have with how God is characterized uh, in a patriarchy-dominated tradition, or that it is in and of itself healing uh, to everyone. I also don't want to say that we need to throw away all of the male images of God or that they are inherently problematic to use or appreciate. Um, there are beautiful things in these depictions, but what I want to do is tell more of the story, uh, to tell the story that... To, yeah, to tell more of the story of the faithful representation of divine femininity and of divine gender nonconformity that is in the text. And especially because the male images of God have too often been absolutized and weaponized, 
and have fashioned God to be reinforcing a way of domination and patriarchy that God just isn't for in the text. So looking towards these feminine and gender non-conforming images of God help us to not only look past the harmful images of God uh, and of domination and often violence, but also help us to access new male images of God that do not inherently correlate to harmful masculinity that are generative and life-giving in and of themselves. So, yeah, there's a lot of potential for discovering richness in looking at non-male images of gods, and it's not a magic bullet. <laughs> it's just as valid to keep and nuance the images of God that skew towards the male images uh, as it is to grow and nuance our non-male images and language of God. I'm evidently a bit more la interested in the latter, um, but, yeah. Caveats made, acknowledgements acknowledged. I'm going to take a sip of water. Ooh, I have pictures. Not that one. Also not that. Ooh, spicy. This one. Uh, this is an icon of Jesus. Um, you may recognize the sort of typical Jesus figure hovering in the middle of the air. Uh, underneath in the red figure is Sophia, with, um, depending on how good you are, Cyrillic is, you may recognize uh, Maria to the right, my left, and um, John the Baptist on uh, the right. Uh, and this shows the kind of um, line that the early church really easily drew between Sophia, divine wisdom, and Jesus, um, which is just, yeah, incredible. Uh, so much so that the feminist theologian Elizabeth Schuschler-Fiorenza says, the earliest Christian theology was Sophiology, the first ways of making sense of Jesus's life, ministry, and death is through this lens of Sophia wisdom. And I love also, especially that John is depicted in this icon, um, because he makes a particularly big deal of making the, the connection with Sophia and Jesus. Um, the whole logos, meaning the word of God, preamble of, of John 1, uh, of the word who was with God at the beginning of creation, echoes that language of Proverbs of wisdom existing before the world came to be and co-created the world with God. Logos is Sophia taking on flesh for John. And there is seeming no dissonance or discomfort in terms of gender to use these images and applying them to Jesus. And it's an entirely valid reading of the text to read, in the beginning was Sophia, woman wisdom, and Sophia was with God, and God was Sophia. And this, to me, sets the stage so well for thinking about Jesus identifying with the trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming experience of being known beyond one understanding of gender. And before I go on, um, a brief one-on-one -on -one by what I mean 
what I mean by the words trans and non-binary. Trans is a Latin prefix that means across or on the other side of. It's the opposite of the word cis, of the prefix cis, which means on the same side of. And when we put those prefixes in front of the word gender, uh, we mean to say that someone who is cisgender understands themselves as on the same side of the sex that they were assigned at birth. Um, and for someone who is transgender, experiences their gender and their sex to be not aligned or um, on the other side of the sex that they were assigned at birth. And transgender is an umbrella term that includes people who identify as non-binary, like me. Um, who have been assigned a sex at birth and hold a more uh, complex understanding of their, our genders. Um, the first time they, them pronouns made sense for me to apply to me and describe my experience was uh, when I was thinking, I'd just read a collection of queer stories in Australia and was thinking about all of the versions of me that I hold, all of the stories and nuances present at any given moment in me, and how could anything but they describe all of that, describe me in all of my multitudes? And that understanding of me being outside, beyond, and somehow all of the genders <laughs> is not the same as the sex that I was assigned at birth. So, um, trans, yay, happy pride. <laughs> and so, this Sophia takes on flesh and becomes human. Wisdom herself becomes human himself with little more than an announcement from John. And this human body of Sophia Jesus holds such complexity within it that he gives birth on the cross as he dies. This is much later in John when Jesus is crucified and dying at the hands of a violent regime. And he is stabbed by a spear in his side. And John describes the rush of blood and water coming from the wound language which mirrors that of a pregnant person's water breaking um, as they start to birth new life. And this has often been interpreting, interpreted as God giving birth to the new world. Um, for me, imaging Jesus as a trans man, bleeding and in pain from childbirth or menstruation, offers an imperfect way to think about the blood of Jesus beyond suffering and violence for punishment's sake. And the church has long since thought about the significance of the blood of Christ on the cross um, and has imagined it as a necessary sacrifice for atonement, God enduring the punishment of humankind's sin, which are problematic images for many of us and go hand in hand with the punitive and domination-driven images of God. Um, the womanist theologian Karen Baker Fletcher uh, is one of the people who speaks on the blood of concept as celebrating life rather than self-sacrificial death. And she writes in her book, Dancing with God, 
the significance of Jesus' blood is that throughout his life, crucifixion, death and resurrection, Jesus the Christ shares the power of life which blood represents with the world. And so thinking this in a context of Jesus menstruating, menstrual blood is, after all, no more or less clean or shameful than regular blood. And yet, even in a context where we talk about the blood of Christ and participate in a ritual of drinking it every week, I can feel myself like, ah, tensing up at the idea of talking about menstrual blood in a church. Um, and I don't want to advocate for abandoning all collective carefulness around uh, the topics of like menstruation and childbirth. Uh, but I do want to acknowledge, especially, that thinking of the blood of Jesus as menstrual blood is also not necessarily more inclusive and positive, even for menstruating and birthing people. The crux of how it functions positively for me, though, is thinking of Sophia Jesus as a bleeding trans man means that God is in true solidarity with me when I bleed, and that my pain and bleeding is an experience within God's lived experience of the world. And that my bleeding doesn't necessitate me identifying with a static understanding of my gender, much like a God who refuses being defined or confined to a static expectation of gender. It also functions to remind me that Jesus' death was not required for the absolution of humankind, but was drawn as a reaction of a violent regime to Jesus proclaiming the wisdom of Sophia, the all-inclusive goodness of God and the equality of all her children. And this is my invitation to you, that thinking and imaging Jesus as a trans person invites solidarity from us, from you, to the trans people in your life. And as a ritual and a practice for us today, what might opportunities for solidarity with trans people look like? What will that solidarity require of you? Sophia, Jesus shows us the way of wisdom in their life. Uh, Jesus constantly queers roles and uh, gender roles and expectations in big and small ways all the time. Um, and what I mean by queering is picking up this idea and looking at it with new eyes, without the expectations and um, understandings that we bring with us to the text, uh, to discover it as foreign for the first time and rediscover what treasures it might hold for us. Uh, so yeah, Jesus queers gender roles all the time. He touches menstruating women. He washes the feet and anoints the heads of his disciples and weeps for friends that he will resurrect from the dead. His disciples are sent out to announce and make the kingdom of God experientially available to those on the margins of society. Um, and, yeah, Shisla Fiorenzo says it so beautifully, I can only quote her here. What the followers of Jesus offered was not an alternative lifestyle, but an alternative ethos. They were those without a future, but now they had hope again. 
They were the outcast and downtrodden, but now they had the dignity and self-confidence as God Sophia's beloved children. These are those whom the Beatitudes are written about. You will find God with the poor. You will find God with the mourning. You will find God with the trans people as a trans person. And we're going to be talking a bit more in the series about what this means and looks like for our community. Um, initially, this is only all going to be one conversation, but Shane, in his infinite Sophia wisdom, said that maybe this is a two-week, a two-week, uh, two-parter. Um, so we'll be we'll be thinking more about what this means for our community and how we can participate in solidarity for trans people. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it here for now and invite Shane back up to walk us through communion. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. You can give Annika a clap. You are lovely. Mm. Um, I reckon you can sit because you've been standing for so long. I'm worried about your little legs. Thank you so much for inviting us into that space. Um, while you were talking, I had this memory of um, I've got two kids and both of them were Caesar births. Um, and 